incantation. Thank you for your patience. Human reason is beautiful and invincible. No barbs, no barbed wire, no pulping of books, no sentence of banishment can prevail against it. It establishes the universal ideas and language, and guides our hands. So we write truth and justice with capital letters, lie and oppression with small. It puts what should be above things as they are. Is an enemy of despair and a friend of hope. It does not know Jew from Greek or slave from master, giving us the estate of the world to manage. It saves austere and transparent phrases from the filthy discord of tortured words. It says that everything is new under the sun, opens the congealed fist of the past. Beautiful and very young are philosophia and poetry, her ally in the service of the good. As late as yesterday, nature celebrated their birth. The news was brought to the mountains by a unicorn and an echo. Their friendship will be glorious. Their time has no limit. Their enemies have delivered themselves to destruction. Genius was what they called you in high school if you tripped on a shoelace in the hall and all your books went flying. Or if you walked into an open locker door, you would be known as Einstein, who imagined riding a streetcar into infinity. Later, genius became someone who could take a sliver of chalk and square pie a hundred places out beyond the decimal point. Or a man painting on his back on a scaffold, or drawing a water wheel in a margin, or spinning out a little night music. But earlier this week, on a wooded path, I thought the swans afloat on the reservoir were the true geniuses, the ones who had figured out how to fly, how to be both beautiful and brutal, and how to mate for life. Twenty-four geniuses in all, for I numbered them as Yates had done, deployed upon the calm, crystalline surface. Forty-eight, if we count their white reflections, or an even fifty, if you want to throw in me and the dog running up ahead, who were at least smart enough to be out that morning, she sniffing the ground, me with my head up in the bright morning air. Sometimes, when we're on a long drive and we've talked enough and listened to enough music, and stopped twice, once to eat, once to see the view, we fall into this rhythm of silence. It swings back and forth between us like a rope over a lake. Maybe it's what we don't say that saves us. Maybe 
It's what we don't say that saves us, the poet reminds us. And if you're like me, you know this all too well. If you're like me in this way, you know it's what you haven't said that has saved you. If you're like me in this way, you sometimes get in arguments with the people that you love. Romantic partners, family members, dear friends. And for me, and maybe for you, if the argument is heated enough, if I start to feel hurt and angry, the most cutting words can come to mind. The ones that I know will hurt the other person deeply. And the words that appear are wounding precisely because I know that person well. The words weaponize our closeness and the strength of our relationship. It's an awful feeling when these words start to bubble up. And maybe this doesn't happen to you. And I hope it doesn't happen to you. And most of the time when those words bubble up, I can bite my tongue or clench my jaw or swallow them back. My wisdom and my reason know that to speak those words would escalate the argument and, our, and the cruelty in ways that I don't want. But the wounded animal in me wants to lash out. Most of the time, I can hold it back, save the pain, prevent damage to the relationship. Maybe it's what we don't say that saves us. And in these moments, it's definitely what we don't say that saves us. The silence, the clenched jaw that keeps the hurt from multiplying, the knowing how to proceed in the moment, that is prudence. And then when that moment has passed, when the argument is over and calm is restored, a strange thing happens. There is yet another part of me that wants credit for not saying that hurtful thing. (laughs) And there is no way to get credit for that. We can't show off our restraint and still be restrained. There's no way to say to someone, I thought of this terrible thing I could say to you and I didn't say it, so congratulate me. There's no way to do that without being completely ridiculous. We can't eat our cake and have it too. And believe me, I've tried. The congratulations on offer are the ones we give ourselves for quietly doing a hard thing. The congratulations on offer are the ones we give ourselves for staying in right relationship, for seeing that self-destruct button tantalizingly sitting right in front of us and not pressing it. For being prudent. For some of us, the holy as we understand it is alongside us to witness the struggle and the, for self-restraint, the struggle for prudence, and it offers encouragement. And maybe your particular struggle is not around swallowing back hurtful words. Maybe it's what you don't do in some other way that saves you, that saves your relationships. Perhaps there's some other form of not doing that you quietly struggle with and don't get congratulations for. Prudence, our virtue of the day, is about restraint about the not doing that saves us. 
about letting our reason and our wisdom triumph over the less reasonable and less wise parts of ourselves. But it's a lot more than that, too. Prudence is one of the seven heavenly virtues named by the early Christians who adopted and expanded a list from the ancient Greeks. Prudence is not a glamorous virtue. It's not hope or love or justice. We don't talk about it much. And sometimes prude is hurled about as an insult, as if this virtue is actually a vice. The silence about prudence is in part because prudence is harder to understand than those other virtues. It's restraint, but more than that. It's good judgment, but more than that. Some call it practical wisdom. It's the ability to recognize a whole situation and know how to proceed. And it takes a lot of well-developed skills to be able to be a prudent person. Thomas Aquinas was an Italian priest, philosopher, and theologian who lived in the 13th century. His writing and teaching shaped a lot of the Western Christian tradition. And he wrote about prudence, among many, many other things. He considered it a virtue of the highest order. And to be prudent, to practice prudence, he writes that you have to develop all of the parts of prudence, which he lists as memory, foresight, intelligence, shrewdness, reasoning, circumspection, caution, and teachableness. That's the ability to learn from a situation and not repeat the same mistake. That is a lot. Aquinas believed that prudence was a linchpin of the virtuous life. It was through prudence, by seeing things as they are and knowing how to proceed, that one knew which other virtue to rely on in any situation. So what does it mean to be prudent? It means seeing things as they are. It means having good judgment. It means knowing the path forward. It means restraining our impulses that do not serve us or our relationships. It also means being an integrated person, knowing that there are parts of oneself in conflict, like reason and wisdom and woundedness in the experience I shared earlier, and weighing our options. One scholar of prudence describes it this way. Prudence is an integrative virtue, integrating intellect and will theory and context, action and agent, reason and emotion, past and future, the individual and his or her community, the proximate and ultimate ends of human life. To practice prudence, we need to be integrated, whole humans. And, here's, and so what does this look like in practice? The following is a description of a prudent person I came across in my research, and I've slightly edited the words for inclusivity. The prudent person is one who is open to the world as it is, who regards reality with clear-sighted objectivity, who possesses the perfect ability to make decisions in accordance with reality. Thus, he, she, or they is the sort of person who sizes up the situations well, who can step into complex situations and know what needs to be done and who is about to bring out who is able to bring out the best in other people himself herself or themselves in a way that leaves everyone better off he she or they is trustworthy fair and honest 
about his, her, or their own abilities and combines thoughtfulness with an ability to act rapidly and decisively when needed. A prudent person is self-aware and quick on his, her, or their feet, yet firmly grounded in conviction. A prudent person is respectful of rules and laws, but is not rule-bound. His, her, or their judgment is so trustworthy that he, she, or they does not always have to be referring to rules and laws and is able to flexibly adapt to changing circumstances in which no rules suffice. And that sounds like a description of some sort of spiritual superhero, I think. Some, someone who has integrated all of their ways of being and knowing and then can act out of that integrity. I don't know if any of us can ever fit that description all of the time, but we can get closer to that ideal, and there are ways to help us do that. Warren, Warren Kinghorn teaches at Duke University. He's a medical doctor who teaches psychiatry at Duke Medical School, and he also holds a doctorate in theology and teaches pastoral and moral theology at Duke Divinity School. He thinks and writes and teaches about the intersections of mental health and religious communities. And he has a suggestion for those of us seeking to live a more prudent life, to unleash that spiritual superpower. He recommends a mindfulness practice as a path towards prudence. There are a variety of mindfulness practices a variety of ways to help us slow our thoughts, pay attention to our bodies and our breath, strengthen our heart, our soul, and our will. Nearly every wisdom tradition has practices like this. There's yoga and meditation rooted in the Hindu tradition. There are other meditation practices rooted in Buddhism. There are contemplative practices in all of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And there are increasingly mindfulness practices that are secular, that take this traditional wisdom and remove the cultural and religious contexts for therapeutic and self-care purposes. One of these is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And all of these wisdom traditions have mindfulness practices because they know, people have learned over the centuries, that these practices are vital to living a well-integrated life. In the midst of all of our tasks and obligations, we all need to pause, pay attention to our bodies and our breath, process the emotions and worries that get in the way if we do not attend to them, and remember what is most important. We need to slow that spinning hamster wheel of thoughts that keep us from being present. We need to listen to all of those different pieces of ourselves, all of our sometimes warring impulses and different ways of knowing our reason and our wisdom, and choose which ones we act on. Mindfulness helps us do that. Helps us be able to respond with prudence in all aspects of our lives. And the psychiatrists are finding what the mystics always knew. Intentionally doing this work. Slowing down, paying attention to breath, focusing on a, on a mantra or a repeated prayer is good for us. Mindfulness practices are increasingly being used to treat depression, anxiety, and borderline personality disorder, among other mental illnesses. And we know 
the mindfulness benefits us all, whether or not we live with mental illness. On Friday, I, along with several people's people, attended prayers at the Kalamazoo Islamic Center. Sally mentioned it earlier. During the sermon, Imam Hafez told his community, a community that is experiencing so much fear and uncertainty right now, to pray more. These are people who are already praying five times a day if they're being fully observant. He offered them a specific prayer rooted in their tradition. And that's a mindfulness practice. Imam Hafez knows that repeating a familiar prayer is a way to calm fear and anxiety, stitch our various pieces back together, and see the world as it really is, and act with prudence. That's not all he told them, but it was a key part of it. So I encourage you all to have a mindfulness practice. And if you need help cultivating one, come talk to me. That's one of the things I'm here for, you, for, for all of you. And in this world that seems to be constantly shifting around us, the world that is calling us to be prophetic in new and different ways, we need to be acting from our integrity as much as we can. We need to be responsive, but not reactive as much as we can. We need to be prudent. And as I encourage you to give time to a mindfulness practice, I'm aware that there is a deep contradiction in doing this right after Brian has just so beautifully played Dear Prudence. We knew we had to have this song today because you can't have a service about Prudence without playing the Beatles' Dear Prudence. It just, there was no way we, we couldn't do that. And the song gives us a counterexample of the prudent life. Dear Prudence is inspired by a woman who is imprudent in her commitment to a mindfulness practice. In early 1968, Prudence Farrow traveled with her sister, actress Mia Farrow, from the United States to India to study transcendental meditation with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And not long after they arrived, all four Beatles came there to study as well. Pharaoh had been eagerly awaiting this trip for some time and was excited to soak up as much mindfulness and wisdom as she could. So she devoted herself to meditation to the exclusion of everything else. She said later, I had been meditating five days straight. I hadn't gone to the bathroom. I hadn't slept and I hadn't eaten. And after that, Maharishi realized what he was dealing with. The older people on the course, they were sleeping, they were sunbathing on top of the roof, they would go for walks. I was more extreme. So John Lennon, one of the Beatles, noticed Prudence Farrow's extremism. He reflected later, Farrow would come out the little hut we were living in. We got her out of the house. She'd been locked in for three weeks and wouldn't come out. She was trying to find God quicker than anyone else. That was the comp competition in Maharishi's camp. Who was going to get cosmic first? So in addition to getting Pharaoh to leave the house, Lennon wrote the song that Brian played. Dear Prudence, open up your eyes. Dear Prudence, see the sunny skies. The wind is low, the birds will sing that you are part of everything. Dear Prudence, won't you open up your eyes? The song and the story behind it remind us to be prudent in all things, even the quest for wisdom, enlightenment, or prudence. A spiritual practice that cuts us off from the world, 
that leads us to ignore the birds, the sky, and the reality that we are all connected is not much of a spiritual practice. If we decide that becoming more prudent is the goal, we have to be prudent in how we work towards it. We make small adjustments. We find that practicing the aspects of prudence that Aquinas lists, memory, foresight, intelligence, shrewdness, reasoning, circumspection, caution, and teachableness, gets easier every time we do it. It's like building muscle, spiritual, moral, virtuous muscle. To build muscle, we have to do things over and over and over again. Becoming more prudent is no different. Every time we hold back a hurtful word, our restraint and our jaws grow stronger. Every time we are able to see a situation clearly, our visions and assessments become better and more trustworthy. Every time we make a mistake and learn from it, we become better at learning from mistakes. We become more teachable. So in the days and weeks and months ahead, may we strengthen our hearts, our souls, and our wills, and all of the muscles necessary for prudence. May we be mindful and attend to the practices that keep us mindful. May we assess the situations around us with thought and care and choose the best path forward. May may we be prudent. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen. Amen.